Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 898. This week we have an early episode for you, as we welcome another Major League Manager to the show, we open some very exciting mail, and we talk to a real live Canadian about the Blue Jays. First up, David Lorela is joined by Tori Lavello of the Arizona Diamondbacks. They go over things like the times to the order penalty, the Arizona rotation, and the experiences in Tori's career that prepared him for his current role as the manager of the D-backs. Do I know you well enough to assume that you were not ready to manage a big league team 15 years ago? Yeah, probably not. You know, I want to, I want to sit here and pound the table and say, of course I was, and try and basically convince you or myself that I was, but I don't think deep down when I'm looking back 15 years later that I was ready to go. Next up, David joins Jay Jaffe as the pair celebrates finally receiving their Hall of Fame balance after 10 years in the BBWAA. They discuss what that emotional experience was like, their first thoughts on who they may vote for, and their long journeys to get to this day. I'm not sure I ever it ever really sunk into me that, that I was going to be sticking around long enough in the BBWA to actually get to my 10 years. I think at that point I was a little nervous about, about uh, whether I was going to be able to stick in the industry for another year. Finally, Dan Zaborski is joined by Andrew Stoughton to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays. The club continued to move in the right direction in 2020, seeing improvements and progress that resulted in making the expanded playoffs. Dan and Andrew go over the Jays' offseason outlook, how the fans feel about the state of the team, and what exactly is going on with their roster-building strategy. And isn't the Blue Jays and taking all the firstborn sons, isn't that kind <laughs> of the Penguins' plan? That very well could be. I mean, not I mean... the killing part, but kind of using their genetics to, to make like a super soldiers. That rings a bell. It's been a while since I've watched Batman Returns. Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. We want to wish you a happy and safe American Thanksgiving and holiday season in general. We are very grateful for each and every one of you for helping us do everything we do here at Fangraphs. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Tori Lovello, manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Tori, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, David. How are you? I am doing well for a uh, cold, cold uh, early evening in Boston. You are out where it is warm, and I am in a cold weather part of the country. You know, I think, first of all, I know where you are. It is absolutely beautiful there. It's this that special time of the year, fall, nothing better. But the weather out here in Arizona is uh, unbelievable. Got a chance to play a little golf this morning in perfect weather. So there's good and bad with both sides, but I was happy with what I got to do today. And I don't know, Tori, that too many listeners care about your golf game, but uh, <laughs> what, what, what did you shoot today? See, I shot a 92 and I had a rough day with my short irons, but it's usually right where I'm at. It was a pretty good track. I'm usually anywhere from 85 to 95, so I'll, t- I'll take it. Not bad. Right. So baseball, Tori, you mm-hmm. were hired by the Diamondbacks four years ago this month. You know, time flies, as they say. Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to say that four years qualifies you as a veteran big league manager? <laughs> Oh, man, I guess traditionally speaking, I, I guess it would not. But, uh, you know, I know today's game is a little bit different than it was 25, 30 years ago. So I guess it puts me in pretty elite company when it comes to uh, tenure. Uh, so I guess if you want to categorize me as, as a veteran manager, you can. I've been in this game long enough, I think, to call myself a veteran. I've seen a lot. But as far as managing, obviously very thrilled for the past four years that I've spent here in Arizona and looking to, to do some special things here in the future. 
And that is four years ago, seven years ago, in October 2013, an interview ran at Fangraphs titled Tori Lovello, Future Big League Manager. By that time, you'd actually interviewed for a handful of jobs, I believe. Yes, you know, it was it was a long journey for me. It was a long runway to get this um, to get this position and finally land here in Arizona. And I wouldn't have traded it for anything, any anything in the world, any any of the things that happen, whether they're good or bad. I feel like they're all learning experiences, and they kind of lead you down this road. And you know, fate intervenes. And obviously, I'm I'm here with Mike Hazen uh, as a GM. I'm here with incredible ownership. I couldn't imagine any other way. But along the way, there was a lot of heartache. You know, I'd interviewed five or six times, and I felt like you know I'm never going to get this opportunity. But I, I slowly realized that I needed to gain a little bit more experience. And when you think you're ready, you're you're not quite ready. And the people that are doing the interviewing are very, very savvy and smart and know what they're looking for. So I was going to stick with it and I was hoping that my time would come. Uh, I believed that it was going to come much like yourself, where you were able to sit down with me and believe in me by writing that article. I just felt like the right situation needed to present itself. And it certainly did here in Arizona. And unless I'm mistaken, you first interviewed all the way back in 2005 or 2006 for the Dodgers. I believe Grady Little got that job. And I think a lot of listeners may have forgotten that Grady actually managed in L.A. Everybody thinks Boston. Do I know you well enough to assume that you were not ready to manage a big league team 15 years ago? Yeah, probably not. You know, I want to I want to sit here and pound the table and say, of course, I was and try and basically convince you or myself that I was. But I don't think deep down when I'm looking back 15 years later that I was ready to go. I think it was going to be part of part of the journey, as I was just mentioning. But, you know. You just don't know. I was coming off of, uh, you know, uh, being a minor league manager for the for the Cleveland Indians and double A Akron. I felt like I was standing on a lot of the things that this culture uh, is standing on here in Arizona. But the experience has to play out on a different level. And the way you articulate and communicate and teach and talk to players takes on a whole new meaning with experience. So I feel like even though I wanted to believe I was ready, I think the right decision was made. Uh, where I got that experience, uh, got me ready for the next potential interview and potential opportunity. And, you know, like I said, led me down the road to Arizona. You were the bench coach in Boston in 2015 when John Farrell had to take a leave of absence because of a health issue. And you were the interim manager. How invaluable was that toward what you're doing now? Well, I mean, it's it's so hard to to give it any value because... Well, it was invaluable, but I can't quite give it the right value because, you know, first of all, I stepped in um, in the absence of one of my dearest friends who was struggling with a health situation that he eventually fought and overcame. But along the way, I was just kind of riding a wave of excitement because the players that were going out were, were performing and they were good players and the, and the games were, were fun. And I, I feel like I, I kind of got that managerial clock started up in my in my head again. I wasn't the manager. I was a bench coach for John. And I was just obviously offering him, him advice through the course of the game and running the game with him. So the clock was there. But when you're making the decisions and they're final, it's just a little bit different when you're sitting in that seat. So it uh, it kind of reignited that, that clock, uh, that baseball clock. I knew it's something that I wanted to do, but the experience was what I really, really valued. And I feel like once I got that, I checked about just about every box that I possibly could uh, because I would hear different reasons for not getting a certain job after a certain interview. I felt like when I had this interim position, I was going to be very, very qualified when the next opportunity came. 
your bench coach in Arizona has been getting attention, and I believe even if a couple of interviews, mm -hmm. is that correct? Yes, he certainly has. And he's a very talented, young baseball mind, up and coming, bilingual, and you know, very good at relating to players and understanding what the mentality is of a major league baseball player. And you know, once again, I see a lot of me and himself where he is just very eager to learn. He's uh, eager to get around good baseball people and continue understanding what type of what type of bench coach he wants to be. And ultimately, I think he's going to be an exceptional manager. Right. And that is uh, Luis Urieta, I believe he pronounces it. Correct. Correct. Yes. I think that I read at some point that Luis was a very good uh, soccer goalie as a youth. So <laughs> if, if, if the Diamondbacks ever put together a soccer team, he, I think he's uh, going to be very helpful. Right. All right. We'll start with him for sure. I didn't know that. I'm going to have to ask him about that. That's good information. I appreciate that. No, ab absolutely. What was your second best sport? Well, um, probably basketball. I love basketball to this day as a staff. Not this year, unfortunately, we couldn't because of the COVID protocols. But as a staff, we get out and uh, we play two or three times a road trip, have a lot of fun with it. But I, I enjoy basketball. I enjoy the conditioning, the running, the jumping, and the fact that you can, you know, you can shoot a basketball and, and watch it go through a hoop. To me, there's, there's no more excitement. Yeah, let's go back, Tori, to the interview that we did in 2013 mm -hmm. about how you expected to manage once you got the opportunity, mm -hmm. because I'm interested just how similarly you think now. For instance, you said that you were a big fan of continuity mm -hmm. at the top top half of the lineup. I think you brought up Dustin Pedroia as an example that you wouldn't want him to come in and say, oh, you're not hitting first today, you're hitting third mm -hmm. you know, or second, mm -hmm. that you wanted those guys to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Do you feel the same way today about your lineups? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a few things that I've learned. I'm not going to completely pivot off of that, that idea or that suggestion. But, you know, Dustin Pedroia was certainly an elite player and deserved to hit first. And, you know, if he has a rough patch of 10 to 15 games and gets four or five hits, I'm not going to come off of that and drop him down into the, the sixth or seventh spot. I think when you're, when you're established and you're, you're conditioned to doing something, I feel like you deserve to, because of because of the track record and the data that's showing what you're capable of doing, I believe in that same type of lineup continuity. However, there are, to this day, certain matchups at certain points in time that are going to be a little bit more conducive to allowing you to, your team to score runs, and that's really what the name of the game is. So I do believe in lineup continuity when you have the right pieces, and if, if you don't and you have a bunch of guys that need to be kind of filtered and moved around the lineup. I feel like there's it's a newer it's a newer thought, but I feel like it's something that needs to be uh, looked at very, very closely. I can say this. Baseball is a little bit more dynamic now. It used to be it was nine innings that played out, the best team won. Baseball is chopped up into nine different segments and really 18 if you're if you're playing on both sides of the ball. And you got to win every inning. So how are you going to maximize every inning and allow your team to not give up runs and score runs? So at the end of those nine, you can win a baseball game. I think there's you, you got you to construct your lineup as, as wisely as possible to go out and maximize those situations. And does the same apply to, to pitching? I know that you mentioned in 2013 that Koji Yorohara wouldn't necessarily work the ninth inning, you know, under you and John. Well, you know, what's funny is Koji, if I can remember correctly, was the third or fourth 
closer of that, the Red Sox that John tried that year. I think uh, Joel Hanrahan was the original. Then it went to Janichi Tozawa and then to, I forget his first name, but Bailey was his last name. You know, each one of those guys ended up getting a little banged up and it fell into Koji's lap. I think once Koji got that opportunity in that ninth inning, it was it was something that he he really took off in, in, in that role. And I think John utilized them very, very well the rest of the way. Tori, do you think that what we're currently seeing with starters going fewer innings and relievers taking on far more of a workload, is that something we're going to continue to see or might we reverse course and go back a little bit back to how it used to be? Well, I, you know, like I said, I think in the years years past, you know, I could still see, you know, Don Sutton and Andy Messersmith throwing 150 pitches and pitching, you know, a complete game many, many moons ago. That just does not happen in, in today's game. I think medically it's been proven that your starting pitching pitchers are going to be at their competitive best if you preserve them and allow them to sit in that 95 to 105 pitch range once they're fully stretched out and operational through the course of the season. But some of the questions that you ask, you know, I, I feel strongly that a starting pitcher can go out there and get through the lineup two times. I think that's what they're, they're supposed to do. That third time I start to zone in on it and pay very close attention to um, the type of outs that are, are being made or some of the pitches that are being left up. And, you know, certainly if they deserve that fourth time around, they're going to have to show me that they've done something very special and they're in total control of that game. And for, for me, inside of this situation here in Arizona, I don't think it's happened very often. But between that second and third time, after the second and before the fourth and that, that third time, I'm paying close attention to, to what's happening. And I'm ready to make some moves once I determine that it's necessary to go into the bullpen. And preserving the bullpen pieces for me are very are crucial as well. You know, I, I try, to, try to do my best job possible with, with um, establishing roles uh, down there because I feel like pitchers know when they're going to throw their condition for certain parts of the game. But I think there's some adjustments that have been made over the past couple of years in my mindset. And I'll say that it's a positive or a negative role guy. That's mostly done to preserve the bullpen and making sure that you don't bang up your, your arms down there. Uh, so I really work hard to have some positive role guys and some negative role guys. But I know that we had Archie Bradley a couple years ago. Uh, well, last year he got traded. Before he was a closer, I would put him into a game anywhere from the 6th, 7th, or 8th inning at the most critical time of the game, at the most critical of the best point of the opposing lineup to go and get those big outs. So that's not a true setup guy. I think a setup guy to a closer, those days are a little bit, a little bit beyond the game today. I think your setup guy, your best situational guy is going to get those biggest outs, get the biggest moments, and gets the most important part of the opposition's lineup. And once in a while, that closer might jump into that, that eighth inning as well. So but once again, I think that menu is talked about. We, we go over and rehearse with the players about what our expectations are. And they teach me how they want to be coached. And then we go to work from there. Let's talk about your pitching staff for a minute. Who among your starters most impressed you this past season? Yeah, I think obviously there's there's the no-brainers with guys like Madison Bumgarner who was brought over and with his bulldog mentality, you know, he wants he wants to reverse the bus on you and run you over a couple times. There there is no let up and there's a championship mentality in there with every pitch that he's throwing. I really enjoyed getting a chance to watch that uh, from the same dugout. Now, unfortunately, got a little bit banged up. Uh, and he spent some time on the disabled list, but the mentality never changed. He was unbelievable to be around every single day. 
The, the one for me that really took some strides forward was Zach Gallon. Zach uh, had an extremely productive offseason after the 19 season. We traded for him. He got some information, went home with that data, improves the shape and movement of, of his pitches, and he became a very consistent performer. And I know he got Cy Young votes. I think he was in the top 10 in the Cy Young voting. And you know, for a young pitcher with some of the the ability that he has to, to gain perspective and understand what he's trying to get to is pretty unique. And he was a very dependable starter for us this year uh, and somebody that I look forward to every fifth day. Yeah, jumping uh, over to offense, Tori, who are you looking forward to having a strong 2021 season? You know, who's ready to take that next step? Yeah, I mean, we have, we have several candidates. You know, we have some veteran type of players that had some down years, and I know that they're very eager to get back out there and, and turn it around. We had some veteran players that had some good years, and I know looking to capitalize and continue to press forward and have another great year. But one in particular stands out to me is uh, Christian Walker. Um, he's such a great story and so easy to root for because, you know, he spent a bunch of years bouncing around the minor leagues, falling on and off of rosters, you know, waivers, trying to get past through waivers. I think he played for three or four teams in one year. I was technically on three or four teams within one year. And then we luckily claimed him on waivers and sent him to Reno and spent two years in Reno, 2017 and 2018, playing behind arguably one of the best Diamondbacks ever, Paul Goldschmidt, playing the same position. But Christian didn't ever waver. He kept fighting. And when Paul was traded, we gave the job to Jake Lamb in 19. Jake got a little banged up and in stepped Christian Walker, who was ready and prepared himself and had a really good offensive year. And the thing I like most about him is that a little bit, a little bit like some of the, the really special players that I've been around, such as Mookie Betts and, and uh, Dustin Pedroia, they ask questions about their limitations. They ask questions about what it's going to take for them to get better, and they don't get sensitive about it. And they don't, they don't take it the wrong way. Christian Walker will come into my office and ask me what he needs to do to get better. He'll go to the hitting coaches or the defensive coaches and ask, what do I need to do to get better? And we've seen these improvements every single year since he's joined us. And he's had a tremendous 19. He had a very, very dependable 2020. And I think he's ready to take the next steps in 21. Yeah, circling back, Tori, to our 2013 interview, one thing that you brought up was the importance of communication with the front office. Mm -hmm. But more so than just day-to-day, you said that it's important in the offseason when it comes to talking about player acquisitions. Is that something that is happening with you and Mike, Mike Hazen in Arizona right now? It does. It does. The communication that we have is really unbelievable. You know, during a baseball season, I'll see him, you know, two or three times throughout the course of an afternoon. You know, we'll spend 20 minutes to an hour in my office just talking about baseball, talking about different things that pertain to the team. And, you know, throughout the course of the night, maybe after a game or the next morning until we're back together again, we'll have a couple more conversations. And I really enjoy that type of communication because, you know, both of us know exactly what's on our minds. We share some good times. We share some bad times. We have good conversations. We have very, very transparent and tough conversations. But it's for the good of the players and this organization to continue moving forward. The off seasons are a little bit are structured just a little bit differently. I don't talk to them as often. I talk to them several times a week. And it is mostly to inform me about some of the thoughts that he's having, some of the moves that, he, that he's thinking about making, some of the information he's getting on certain guys. And then he'll ask me for my, my thoughts on particular players at different times. Once it gets to that point, I know that it's going to be something that's moving in a very serious direction. So I think he filters it 
Uh, he obviously knows it's it's the off season. He probably doesn't want to bombard me with the amount of phone calls that we have on a normal for the normal part of a season. But still, he informs me as to what he's thinking and some of the deals that he's thinking about making and gets a little bit of my input and then he'll take it from there. Okay, two more things, Tori. One mm-hmm. is a question that I asked Gabe Kapler recently, which is when you go up against rival managers, you know, be it Gabe himself, Jace Tingler, Dusty Baker, whomever, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Are, are you really thinking about who is in the other dugout? Of course. I think that's, you know, what part, part of my job is to understand how uh, you're going to be punched and how you're going to be counterpunched. I think that's a big part of the game. And, you know, sometimes... You, you know a move's going to be happening, and you've got to allow it to happen. The three batter minimum, I think, uh, changed a couple of those dynamics. But there's also other reasons or other ways that, you know, you're going to be getting counterpunched, and there's nothing you can really do about it. However, you know, certain managers have a certain style that you start to get in tune with. And the guys that you mentioned are unbelievably fun to, to manage against. You know, when you're sitting in your own dugout, you better be ready and you better be prepared. You know, in particular, I do remember Gabe being fearless with some of his moves that paid off uh, handsomely and helped his team win games. So that's what a manager can do. You know, you don't want to sit there and, and, and get in the way and change the DNA of a game. But when it's your time to jump in and, and create the best matchup and put somebody in the best situation and move the team forward, I think that's what you got to be ready to do. And the guys that you mentioned did a very, do a very good job of that. Okay, and one last question, Tori, and this is the most important thing that we're going to touch on in, in the entire conversation. When you were managing the Pawtucket Red Sox 10 years ago, uh, you told then Paw Sox broadcaster Steve Heider a story about once as a kid playing basketball, shooting hoops with Elvis Presley. Oh my gosh, that's such a <laughs> my great My understanding great. is that story is not 100% accurate. You have such great recall. You know, I remember telling that to Steve Heider and, you know, once I did, I I had never really told that story. So once I did, uh, my sisters who were a little bit older, I was a young, I was a baby brother. So my brother's seven years older and then my sisters are eight and 10 years older. They were at the, at the event where something did happen uh, between my family and Elvis Presley. However, I was more of a spectator on the sidelines and observing as everybody else was. So I uh, didn't get a chance to shoot with him. Uh, I didn't get a chance to, to dribble and be on the same court as him. But I do remember there are some snapshots. I was probably four or five years old at the time. There are some snapshots of him running and jumping and shooting. And I can tell you that it was, you know, from a, from a distance that wasn't too far. And my sisters could, their recall is a little bit more than mine, uh, better than mine. And they can confirm that. But unfortunately, I got to change that story just a little that I wasn't officially shooting with him. I was watching him play basketball. And you were at some point as a young child introduced to, to Elvis, to your recollection. Yeah, at some point I remember him standing there and my sisters or my dad and my mom saying, that's Elvis Presley right there. So uh, yeah, did he come over and shake my hand? I can't remember that. I can't quite confirm that, but I do know that we were very, very close. And perhaps somewhere in the world, there is a small child now who will someday say that, you know, I got to watch Tori Lovello shoot hoops once. <laughs> How special would that be? Look, I feel like I'm just such an ordinary Joe. I'm just the guy that was, is, was born and raised in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California and now lives in Arizona. So I, I still think that I'm just a very ordinary guy. But if somebody one day ever comes back to me and says that, I know that I probably treated him pretty well. That was an ordinary Joe. I am David Lorela, and I will be back in a moment to talk to Jay Jaffe. 
Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. Last week, I got one of the most exciting pieces of mail in my life, a Hall of Fame ballot. More than 10 years in the making, 10 full years in the BBWAA. It's something that I had been waiting for a long time, particularly considering that I've been writing about Hall of Fame elections for nearly 20 years. I'm not the only person at Fangraphs who has a Hall of Fame ballot for the first time. David Lorela has one as well. And in fact, both of us got ours at the same time back when we were members of Baseball Prospectus. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the process of how we got our ballots and how we're going to fill them out. And we're going to celebrate with a, with a, a virtual beer from uh, a ways away. And we invite you listeners to uh, celebrate as well. David? Hey, Jay. How are you doing? I am doing well. I just opened a beer, my first beer of the night, probably my only beer of the night. It is a Bass Ale. Very good. I am about to crack open a Sierra Nevada Northern Hemisphere Harvest Wet Hop IPA myself here. Let's see if we can capture this. Not bad. Yeah. Tasty. Cheers. Cheers. I think it's pretty safe to say, Jay, that you probably toasted your, your Hall of Fame ballot when it arrived. Yeah, actually, you know, it was kind of anticlimactic when it when when it arrived. I live in a in a high rise apartment building. Our mailboxes are downstairs. We tend to get our mail very late in the day, usually after I've gone out for the last time. So I guess it probably arrived on Wednesday night, and I got it Thursday morning. I'm on my way back from taking my daughter to preschool, and you know, I lo- I I looked at it. I took a photograph of the outside of the envelope. I opened it up to take a look at it. I was like, all right, cool. Now I got to get this article up. And then I just kind of put it aside. And because for me, I'd already had a couple of moments that were, I think, a little bit more, uh, I guess, made it made it real. The first one was during the World Series when they sent us uh, the uh, pre-registration email or the registration email to, to confirm our addresses, which I filled out that, that one out in about five minutes. I was like, can't do that fast enough. I was like, OK, this is cool. And I showed it to a few people. And then on Monday, last Monday, when they said that, yes, you will indeed be receiving your ballot. And uh, Ryan Thibodeau had actually tweeted about that before me. And then I took a, a little victory lap of that on, on Twitter. So by the time I got the ballot, it was a little, it was it maybe, maybe I'd spoiled the party. But uh, I don't know. How about, how about yourself? I think we're going to bore people by describing when our mail comes and when we open a bear. But I, my mail came around 3 o'clock. Um, I think I waited until about 4.30 to have a beer. And I've okay. looked at the ballot probably 20 times since then. <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, despite having all of the, an entire year to know what the ballot looks like, I do not know who I'm going to vote for. I know who some of the players are, but I could see I'm a big, big hall guy. I've said that many times. So I could easily vote for 10 guys, but I may vote for as few as five or six. Okay. I'll need to decide that pretty soon. Yeah. We have until December 31st to postmark our ballots here, but I imagine uh, in light of all of the general troubles that the post offices have been having that most of us probably want to get them off a little bit sooner than that. The announcement is not until January 26th, though, so I, I imagine the BBWA will be careful to make sure that uh, uh, as many ballots get in as possible and uh, they hold as long as possible before they actually count them. But let's back up a bit, David. You and I were at Baseball Prospectus together when we got our cards Trace for me just a little bit the path of, of when you got yours. How long had you been at BP? And at that point, did you ever imagine you were going to stick around in the BBWA long enough to get to do this? Well, I certainly hoped that I would stick around. I was at BP for a few years. I know when I started, Nate Silver was still there, Christina Carl, Joe Sheehan, you know, really most of the original BPers. 
I do recall as well that we went to the winter meetings one year before I got my card to apply. And we thought that, well, we apply for the card, we will get it now. But we had to come back and reapply a year later because we needed to give them the heads up. You know, it was the application process, which that may or may not exist anymore. Right. I seem to remember there being some kind of bureaucratic snafu that prevented uh, us from getting our cards a year early. And I know I was able to to get into a couple of Yankees games with credentials during the 2010 season and then uh, got my card and was fully fledged uh, the next year. I'm not sure I ever it ever really sunk into me that, that I was going to be sticking around long enough in the BBWA to actually get to my 10 years. I think at that point I was uh, a little nervous about, about uh, whether I was going to be able to stick in the industry for another year, just basically due to my income situation. But BP paying paying what it was at the time was just uh, was was not quite enough to uh, uh, really see a bright future for myself. I guess to not to put too fine a point on it, but at the time it was to me it felt like a dream. You know that w- that was far away. But I think once I got to Sports Illustrated in 2012, I started to see that yeah, oh, you know, if I could last in this, I might have a shot. So that's the way it was for me. I took it took a while, I guess, to 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 really sink in that 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 was that that was a possibility. Well, I think, Jay, that one thing that has changed a lot in the decade that we've been in the BBWAA, we used to have the dynamic of anti-sabermetric and sabermetric Hall of Fame, you know, voting ideals. I think that has has merged quite a lot. I think that while there's some perception out there that certain people don't care about advanced stats, they're going to vote for very traditional stats for the Hall of Fame. I don't think you may disagree. I don't think there are that many such writers out there anymore. I think we've we've definitely seen the electorate change a lot, you know, with due to the the shaking out of the industry that's that's kind of uh, unfortunately taken a lot of jobs away. And regardless of how people vote for the Hall of Fame, I don't want to see anybody who's good at their job lose their job, you know. But uh, the the sunsetting of the uh, of the past, the no the no longer active writers was also, I think, a, a big caused a big sea change in in that a lot of those people were definitely not the ones committed to advanced stats, and and we've seen them reduce significantly over the last five cycles. I think there were five hundred and forty something votes. Uh, at the peak uh, in 2015, just before they announced that rule, and there were 397 last year, and I would guess it's probably going to be under 400 again this year. That's like, uh, what, significant reduction here. I'm not going to do math on the air. <laughs> I had the percentage written down in my in my introductory piece. Yes, here here's a piece of math right here, Jay. I checked in with Ryan Thibodeau uh, just a little while ago, and I asked him what the breakdown was on the Roland Viscal voting last year. And let's say, I don't know if I want to give all of the numbers. The important ones are that 169 voters voted for one or the other, while only seven voted for both. And I find that interesting for one primary reason, which is while I don't plan to spend much time seeing who I will vote for this year, in part because I do not know across the board, I'm going to vote for both of those, those players, despite the fact that they are very, very different in what they bring to the table. Okay. Well, let's back up a bit here. Let's talk a little bit about your process, winnowing down who you intend to vote for here. Where do you stand on the on the PED guys, first of all, because they constitute almost a quarter of the ballot, talking about not just Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, but also Manny Ramirez, Gary Sheffield, 
Andy Pettit, and Sammy Sosa. All guys, pretty much with the exception of Pettit, I think, who have numbers that in the past, had there been no PED connections, probably would have gotten them into the Hall of Fame without too much of a fight. So do you have a line there and a strategy for how you would handle those guys? Well, that, Jay, is where the not sure how many people I'm going to vote for comes in. Uh Uh, If if I choose to vote for the quote-unquote PED guys, and I am leaning in that direction, uh um, I'm probably voting for 10 people. If I decide that some or all of them, depending on accusation versus proof, is a reason not to, I am voting for fewer people. So it's a very tough call, to be honest. Yeah. For me, the the line that I, I kind of drew several years ago and one that actually seemed to catch on with actual voters was, you know, the distinguish between what came, what happened during the pre-testing era before the survey test in, in, in 2003 and what came afterwards. So, you know, if you're Balco, if you're a survey test, if you're, you know, whatever Wild West uh, other infractions going on, that's one thing. But if you if you fail the whiz quiz, uh, that's that's something else entirely, and and so far on my virtual ballots, I've I've kind of kept out a pretty clean line, where I've consistently supported Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I, I let the chips fall where they may with regards to Sammy Sosa. His jaws is a bit short for me. I kind of like to give him a vote at, at times. I've thought about it, but I've I, I don't think he's been on many of my virtual ballots. Manny Ramirez, I've ruled out for the moment just because he failed the tests. So that's that. That's sort of the, the the strategy that I have used. But you know, I guess being put on the spot for that on an and and repeating it on an annual basis in my virtual ballot process has kind of hardened that for me. But I get but I get where you're coming from. Where you know, you, you did, if you didn't have to formally make up your mind about these guys, I can see why you might still be mulling that over. So fair enough. The other controversial figure, obviously, is Kurt Schilling. Do you have any preliminary thoughts on that one, on how you're going to go? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) How does one interpret the character clause? It's a hard hard question. I think it matters. This is a conversation that I don't really want to delve too deep into. Um, I will say that I don't look at it as strictly politics, as Republican, Democrat, etc. I think it goes well beyond that. So that's what makes it a tough decision. If it was purely political leanings, it would mean little or nothing to me. I think it goes beyond that, which makes, which makes Schilling a difficult choice as well, along with the PED guys. And I'm not obfuscating here. I honestly don't know which direction I should go with Schilling or Bonds and Clements. Yeah, I the Schilling. I I agree with you on on that. It's it, to me, it's it's the toughest decision on this ballot in some ways. In that you know you do have to figure out how you want to handle this, and you know it does go beyond, like you say, it goes beyond politics. It's not higher taxes, lower taxes. Let's build these roads, bigger government, smaller government. It's it's hate speech. You know he has documented examples of hate speech and and conspiracy theories from here to Mars and back, and some really repugnant stuff there, and and. No, it's probably it probably doesn't fall under the character clause as the character clause has generally been interpreted. But the interpretation of the character clause is something that has not really been consistently interpreted in the history it's been used, and it was never really used in the way it's been used over the last decade until the PED guys came along. So it's a thorny question, and and it's one that I'm wrestling with too, and I still haven't made up my mind. I included him on my virtual ballot last year, knowing that I was going to re- be reevaluating every year, and knowing that the 
the presidential election offered a, a powder keg for him. And true to form, he is tweeting conspiracy theories about stolen elections and things like that. And yes, I imagine all that stuff will enter into my thinking when I do finally uh, make up my mind which way to go on that. But yeah, it's, you know, it's it's kind of getting back to what we we're saying about anticlimax. You know, having already sort of broken down the ballot for the first time by the time I received that envelope and realizing, boy, Bonds, Clemens, Schilling at the top of the ballot, no good first year candidates. This might not be the most fun slate of candidates ever, you know, compared to uh, the ones we've we've had in the last few years. And maybe that maybe that was part of it for me. So let's talk a little bit about Omar Vizquel. I know that you like you like you said, you you're, you're leaning towards including him. Tell me about your thoughts about Vizquel. My thoughts on Vizquel, I've written about it a little bit. Perhaps a few of the things I've written have, haven't been in-depth enough. Because I know, for instance, that I've included some of his counting stats almost as, as the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. But to me, they do, they do matter. One thing that I push back on is when people, and this has happened to me a few times over the years, not recently because we're barely into Hall of Fame time, People have said, how can somebody who writes for Fangrass possibly support somebody for X reason, this reason, that reason? And I understand the reason that I sort of push back at it is I know exactly what they're talking about. I know every one of those numbers. But that boils down to what constitutes a Hall of Famer. Is it numbers only? Or, you know, how important is the word fame? Uh, How important is is pizzazz and flair? you know, entertaining people. Mm-hmm. I have spoken, you know, to many people over the years, many players and coaches. Unfortunately, I couldn't do that this summer very much leading into my first ballot because of the, the pandemic. But I've had so many players tell me that, you know, A, you know, he's a, an idol. You know, Vizquel is an idol in Venezuela. I had a player tell me this year that most any Venezuelan player of this era that I talked to, they will point at him as, as their idol. And another aspect on that is, is the longevity. Is, and you've, you've been told this many times as well in clubhouses too, Jay, is that it's hard to get to the big leagues. It's even harder to stay there. So to stay for 20 plus seasons and play at a high level at shortstop until you're 45 years old, it is quite remarkable. I read just today in a column that the number of players who make it to 10 years in the big leagues over time has been 6%. So what, you know, the number then who made it to 24 years, you know, is probably half of 1%. You know, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, it's probably less than half a percent. I mean, there's only a small handful of guys that have lasted as lasted as long as Vizquel did in the major leagues. You know, and obviously the the general thinking through the electorate right now is that he is a qualified Hall of Famer. He got fifty two point six percent of the uh, of the vote last year. I expect it to go up this year, perhaps uh, you know significantly given how little traffic there is on this ballot. I am not a big supporter of his candidacy because of Jaws, but, you know, I, I've heard some of the criticism directed at you. And, and you know, I, I guess I, I understand why somebody would say that. But, you know, nobody just be, just because I'm I'm writing my series at Fangraphs doesn't mean everybody who votes for the Hall of Fame at Fangraphs is obligated to use it. You know, I never uh, uh, I never intended Jaws to be the law of the land anywhere. It's just a tool that people can use to uh, to help make up their minds about things and, and whether you're at Fangraphs or not. But to me, it's not even close. I mean, I understand the affection, you know, with which Vizquel's countrymen uh, view him. 
Uh, I've certainly got some of their ire via social media when I have uh, written about him annually. But uh, for me, the numbers really are, are, are so far off with Jaws that I have a hard time seeing where, where where he's a borderline case and I could lean the other way. Whereas if I look at, say, I don't know, somebody like Bobby Abreu, whose Jaws is above 50 or, you know, Sammy Sosa, think about those things. It's, it, it's a little easier for me to say, yeah, this guy's close enough. So that one, that's one where, where I think, I think we're going to differ here. Glad to hear you're a Roland supporter. He's the one that I've been championing as, as kind of the heir to the stat head love from, uh, you know, the, the movement to, uh, to get Tim Raines elected, to get Edgar Martinez elected, and, and then Larry Walker. Now we've got Scott Rowland, who's got oodles of years left on the ballot compared to those guys when the clock was running out on them. So I can understand why you might view him similarly to Vizquel, because uh, they both had a lot of gold gloves and, and a lot of uh, highlights and everything like that. But, but tell me a little bit more about your thinking on him. Well, I don't know, Jay, that I really need to say any more than the fact that I pay attention to things like Jaws. I think most of the listeners know how great of a player he was and how underappreciated he was by people who look only at, you know, maybe batting average or, or home runs. He mm-hmm. was a great player. That is why I brought up early in the conversation the dynamic of voting for both uh, Roland right. and Vizquel. I don't think that you need to be in one camp or another. I think the Hall of Fame... Matter of fact, I think I know the Hall of Fame is very, very subjective. You know, again, what constitutes the Hall of Famer? You know, they were both great players for different reasons. And Bobby Abreu, who you brought up, is absolutely a strong candidate. He's he's very underrated, but the numbers say that. You know, to me, they say he's he's a Hall of Famer. You know, he is maybe borderline, on you know, for my final ballot. But right. don't be surprised if uh, I check his name off. Yeah, Abreu is a guy who looks like he's kind of in that gray zone to me, a, l- a little short of, of, of the Jaws averages, but still just a really strong career and uh, some impressive numbers. I wish the defense was just a little bit stronger because it would have certainly helped his candidacy and his Jaws a little a little bit more. You know, when he was in New York, he was notoriously afraid of the wall, and uh, I think that kind of gave him a bit of a bad rap uh, because he was he was seen as something less than a fully dedicated player. It was like he was he, he was viewed a little bit as soft, which I thought was kind of unfortunate. I loved when he came back with the Mets. Uh, he was kind of at the end, you know, he'd been out of the major leagues for, for a couple of years and he came back with the Mets. And, you know, his, his final numbers weren't good, but he had some hot streaks in there and he just looked like a guy who was born to hit, you know, just like a guy who was as comfortable with the plate any day of the year, no, just going up there knowing that he could hit this guy. And there was a, sub, a subjective impression of him that, that I've, I guess I've never really been able to shake. And I, I always enjoyed watching him play. And a ton of stolen bases as well. Yeah, totally multidimensional. I agree. Right. You, you brought up the perception of softness. Living in Boston and spending a lot of time at Fenway Park, I'm reminded of how Red Sox fans love Trot Nixon a lot more than J.D. Drew because Drew was looked at as soft and Nixon was a dirt dog. And I think you and I will both agree who the better baseball player was. Right. Let's see. A few guys who've been on the ballot, or a couple guys who've been on the ballot for a long time. I guess Gary Sheffield probably falls in in the what are you going to do about PEDs camp. How do you feel about Jeff Kent? Jeff Kent is very interesting for a number of reasons. Um, As you probably know, his war is almost identical to Todd Helton's, Mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting. Helton, of course, has the WRC plus 
advantage, but then you get into the second baseman versus first baseman. Another interesting thing, too, on Helton is somebody who he is very similar with also is Brian Giles, who I think nobody would ever think Hall of Fame. But Giles actually has more war and a higher WRC plus than, than Todd Helton, which I think is remarkable. So you're talking you're talking Fangraph's war on both of those guys. That is correct. Yes, okay. I, I do believe that Helton has an, an edge over Giles in yeah. in B war. In B war, Helton's about six ahead of Jeff Kent, and he's got to be even further ahead of Brian Giles, whom I remember Brian Giles. Brian Giles has a pretty you know pretty good career. Fifty one war. For his career, Helton's at 61 more by Baseball References version. I know with Helton, you're going to get, I think, a more variation than you will for the average player because of the Coors factor uh, and the extent to which the air is let out of those stats. But yeah, I mean, there are definitely guys, you know, uh, who are bygone candidates that Helton might be comparable to. But in Jaws, he really fares, uh, he's right around the average first baseman. And I, he's a guy who I think I'll probably include on my ballot. I'm, I, I've, I've had him on my virtual ballots. So you're leaning more towards yes on him, or you're where where are you on him? On Helton, I would say yeah. that I would lean Kent over Helton, and they're lean both Kent over Helton. Okay, and they are both on my tentative. If I go with with ten players list, right? Yeah, Kent's a guy. I I have to admit, I'm a little surprised Kent doesn't do better in Jaws. You know, because and, and it's mostly his defense, and I guess the the three fifty six on base percentage was just not that remarkable given the high offense era in which he played. So I think he gets dinged for that a little bit. But I'm surprised he hasn't fared that well in the voting. Twenty seven and a half percent last year. I would have thought he was a guy who would probably be in a position like Omar Vizquel finds himself now, somebody who's probably on his way to the Hall Hall of Fame eventually with or without my, you know, the imprimatur of, of uh, a solid Jaws showing. So I've never really strongly considered him for my ballots, but I can understand why if you're if you're less married to Jaws than I am, uh, why why somebody might be. Yeah, I think there's an obligation, Jay, that you are going to be somewhat more married to Jaws than, than yeah, I am. Indeed. To round this out here, I guess the two we haven't really discussed here that I think certainly would merit consideration on my ballot, and I imagine you're you're thinking about them too, Billy Wagner and Andrew Jones. Two very different players. Obviously, relievers are, are, are an interesting question unto themselves, and Jones, with his fielding prowess and with his uh, relatively early collapse, creates his own uh, issues for the ballot. What are, your, what are your thoughts on those guys right now? Wagner, I like a lot. I think that relievers are very much undervalued in the Hall of Fame. They are certainly undervalued with war. That's that's stating the obvious. Uh, Wagner's numbers are, are eye-popping. Is he Mariano Rivera? Well, it depends on how, how you look at it. Uh, the saves, no. The longevity, no. A lot of the other numbers, yes. I think he was at least as dominant as Rivera. You know, to me, he is he probably belongs in the Hall of Fame. I will be surprised that if he ever gets there. Yeah, for me, Wagner, I mean, you know, 900 innings doesn't seem like much. And, and and it certainly, when you look at the footprint of the other of the other relievers in the Hall of Fame, uh, longevity is a factor. But I just, every time I see these numbers, I'm like, wow, got to do something about this. And it's, you know, that he has the highest strikeout rate of any pitcher uh, at that level of innings and the lowest opponent batting average of any pitcher with that level of innings. That is a guy nobody wants to face. 
and the sheer dominance is such that I I feel like I've I've had to figure out exactly how I want to how I want to tackle this. But yeah, I lean I lean yes on Wagner, and I also can't get over the fact that he was a uh, uh, born a righty and learned to throw with his left hand because he broke his right right arm twice as a kid. I mean, that's to, to me that's it, remarkable. It's a great story. Uh, so Andrew Jones, thoughts on him? My thoughts on Andrew Jones are I wish he either would have fallen off the table offensively a year or two earlier or a year or two later, and he would be an easy choice yeah. in, in either direction. He was absolutely brilliant, you know, stating the obvious with the glove. He had the elite home run seasons. At his peak, he is a no-doubt Hall of Famer. Does the steep declines mean that he is not a Hall of Famer? You know, and that will also beg the question of what if it was the other way around? You know, uh, it's sort of the Sandy Koufax thing. What if Koufax was the best pitcher, one of the best pitchers in history for six years, and then was very ordinary as he was in his first six years? Right. You know, he would not be as famous. People would look at, wow, what happened to Koufax? That greatness disappeared. So that's what Jones faces. A lot of people are going to say, you know, what could have been? There's a pretty good chance, despite the what could have been, that that he'll get a check mark from me. Yeah, I lean towards yes on on Jones myself, and that the, those defensive numbers. I keep coming back to you know the fact that uh, of the big three in the Braves rotation, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz. Smoltz was the only guy who who was really kind of a strikeout, a real strikeout artist, and the other guys had to rely on their defenses uh, a lot. Not that Smoltz didn't, but those balls had to go somewhere to die, and Jones did more. Uh, behind those two than than any other defender and and gets a lot of the credit for you know for helping those guys out so i i kind of lean towards towards including him myself well i think we've uh we've worked through this and i know over the next five weeks here we've got a lot still to think about but david thank you for sharing your thoughts uh with me on the ballot and congratulations on on getting one and i know this means a lot to you and and certainly means a lot to me so i'm glad we could uh, share this time and talk about this Yes. Thank you, Jay. And uh, cheers. Uh, Cheers to you. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. We'll see you next week. Welcome to the Dan Zimborski Untitled Baseball-Related Segment. I'm Dan Zimborski, quite obviously, because nobody who doesn't have my name would use that as their nom de plume. Joining me today to talk some Blue Jays baseball is Andrew Stoughton. Andrew has written for The Athletic, Vice, The Score, The National Post, other things, and was a co-creator of the Drunk Jays fan blog back in the days of yore. You could say he's the Canadian tire of baseball writers. I don't know what that means either. Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, what a what a, a wonderful uh, applauded to be called the Canadian tire of baseball writers. I've been there once. I'm still trying to understand it. It sounds like it's a tire place, but there's tires and a lot more. Yeah, it's sort of Walmart-esque, really, at this point, minus the groceries. Oh, so I, I called you the Walmart-esque of baseball. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say, you know, crappy tires, uh, uh, an icon of our beautiful country. Okay, so you're, I, I called you an icon then. So that's, that's <laughs> Basically. It makes it up. Okay, <laughs> kind of the average between Walmart and icon. That, that's, a good, that's a good space to be in uh, on average. Okay, well, the Jays finished up their 2020 season. They made the playoffs. Finished above 500, had a pretty solid run. They were above the Yankees uh, for a good chunk of the season. So 
just on a basic fundamental level, how do you feel about the 2020 season? Because, you know, it was played against the background of COVID and all that, and it was in Buffalo. But I'm just curious, like, what your initial impressions are and just your general takeaways. I, I thought, it, you know, for the Blue Jays, I thought it was really good. I mean, I thought it was the step in the right direction that they needed to take and that, you know, they had they'd gone in, they'd, they'd signed Hyunjin Ryu, and that was obviously a, a signal that they thought the rebuild was sort of turning the corner and they did what they needed to do. I mean, obviously, they were they were helped in uh, greatly by the, the expanded playoff format and that sort of gave the season a, a little bit of extra life. But yeah, the, the playing in Buffalo and they, and, and, you know, they started the season with a long road trip and it was basically a road trip for them the whole year. They really, they, they overcame some stuff there, which was, was impressive. And like you say, they were ahead of the Yankees until they got slaughtered by the Yankees in <laughs> September. Um, and so there were, there was a, a ton of positives to take from the season. And I think, you know, even though you can only learn so much in six, 60 games. Uh, I think they kind of have a good, a better sense than, you know, when the season started of, of where they are and where they need to go. How are you feeling about uh, the pitching past Ryu? Because Ryu, of course, was terrific in his first season. I mean, he, he picked as well as anybody could have expected in the AL East. He had an ERA under three. He only allowed six home runs in 60 some innings uh, with the team. But the rest of the rotation, I mean, it wasn't amazing. There were some high spots. There were some low spots. There was there were flashes of excitement from Nate Pearson. But when you, when you saw them in the playoffs, it felt like just a thin rotation. Now we only saw two games in the playoffs. But how are you feeling about the state of the starting pitching once you get past Ryu? Yeah, it's uh, it's clearly an area that needs improvement, right? I mean, uh, Pearson had not a disappointing year because he's you know he's come so far so quickly and is so young, and I think they still think the world of him. There's obviously still some durability concerns about him, but I think they they feel really good about where he is, and and uh, and I know that you know talking about the zips and and uh, and the projections, uh, his comp was uh, was quite spectacular. So I think everybody feels great there. Robbie Ray's come back, and he's an interesting an interesting guy that I think just really liked the environment, and the Jays liked working with him and felt that that was just a good match. And I think he can, as frustrating as he can be to watch, you know, there's, there, there's no, there's no one more Robbie Ray than Robbie Ray. It's just, it's all walks and strikeouts and it takes forever. And he's grunting his way through, but, but you know, he, he pitched quite well. And uh, I think that's going to help them. Uh, they obviously need a couple more arms. I think they have some interesting younger pieces. Julian Merriweather looked good at the end of the year. Another, another guy with durability concerns, but he was the, the piece that came back for Josh Donaldson that Blue Jays fans have hated for two years because of that trade. But he looks like there's something there. And, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are some guys and there's some guys coming, but it's definitely the, the spot where fans are mostly sort of interested in, in what's going to happen on the free agent and the trade market. You mentioned uh, Nate Pearson's top comp, uh, which was Jim Palmer, which I'm, I'm sure that any Blue Jay fan would happily take. <laughs> but as an Oriole fan, born in the late 70s, so I'm 42 now, if, if I'm doing my math right, growing up at like kind of my peak childhood baseball fandom, the Orioles' rivals weren't the Yankees or the Red Sox. Uh, they were the Blue Jays. The, the big 89 run down to that final weekend of the, of the O's and the Jays. And when I think of, of a young Blue Jays prospect being compared to an Oriole great, I have a just a slight little tinge of just madness <laughs> because I think of Mike Mussina not pitching in that all-star <laughs> game with Cito Gaston. And I think I think of that fun Orioles Blue Jays rivalry. Do you think if the O's break out, how do you feel about would you be cool with an O's Blue Jay rivalry revival? Oh, absolutely. I you know and 
the teams, I mean, I think, you know, the years when I was starting the blog and in the mid 2000s, you know, going to every home game with the Jays, sneaking down into good seats. And uh, I remember meeting in particular one Orioles fan who we were just kind of uh, both teams were just mired in terribleness for a, a very long time. I think the O's were maybe, you know, the, the Melvin Mora era were, were, were a little bit better. But yeah, there was there was sort of like mutual sympathy there because the Red Sox and Yankees were so good for so long. And don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think any Blue Jays fans are going to be cheering for the Orioles anytime soon. We're we're still very chuffed about the the wild card game and like to pretend Zach Britton is still sitting in the bullpen in the Sky Dome. Uh, but but anything, yeah, anything like that that brings up those old rivalries is great to me. I mean, the Tigers is another team that is that sort of falls into the same boat, which is just such a shame that we've lost that with the realignment. Yeah, and, and the unbalanced schedules. It was mm-hmm. it was fun uh, because, you know, I'm still, when I'm forced to, I still think of, like, teams being in the old AL East. If 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 someone, like, held me at gunpoint and said, what division are the Brewers in? I would say, and, uh, uh, AL East. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Yeah, because we're, we're about the same age, I, I kind mm-hmm. of deduce. Because, you know, to me, it seems that the Red Sox and the Yankees, they have each other. And for the Orioles or the Blue Jays to kind of latch onto the Yankees or Red Sox as a rival... It just feels like you're the third wheel in a way, like kind of in the Bond movies where they kind of pinned off the Cold War as like the UK versus the USSR. And watching this always (laughs) felt kind of bad. I'm like, you know, guys, the USA was kind of the rival, not the UK. You guys were kind of the the sidekick, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, like Yankees fans probably don't know how much Blue Jays fans dislike them. Because it's like, oh, we, we exist, I guess. But I don't think it's, it could never be what the Boston-New York rivalry is, obviously. So yeah, the, I'm all for those years when uh, it's the Orioles and Jays. I, I have to admit that uh, when the Blue Jays played in Camden Yards and they would play O Canada, I would shout O for O Canada for the Orioles because that's what you do. <laughs> so I'm sorry for, you know, being very rude to the National Anthem. <laughs> I, it's okay. Okay. It's okay. I won't. I won't try to. I won't try to come up with several other instances of my own where perhaps <laughs> I've been rude. Now, do Blue Jays fans yell anything? I, I I haven't noticed anything. Like, is there a secret? Do Blue Jays fans ever sing something from their national? I mean, they anthem? don't. Like, they don't. I mean, we do "Okay, Blue Jays," which is our seventh inning stretch song, which is corny as hell, yet somehow beloved still anyway. Yeah, because I was just trying to think of my trips to Toronto and and if there was any kind of weird little thing like like the O's fans do with O. But anyway, going back to talking about the pitching in the offseason, I, I do like the the Robbie Ray edition, and Zips clearly does. I mean, Zips mm-hmm. gave him, uh, even after last season, an ERA close to four. I don't know if you take the over or under on that one. But who do you think would you like the Blue Jays to go after? And who do you think is reasonable for the Blue Jays to go after? You know, I I really enjoyed Taiwan Walker's time here. I thought that that was a really interesting addition, though I'm sort of skeptical of some of the the gains that he made last year. Like I think anybody is. I'm not sure what uh, where Zips has him, but but that, I mean, ba- I basically I'm going to try to talk my way ar- around saying Trevor Bauer because that's obviously <laughs> a, not a person that I would like the Blue Jays to ask people to cheer for. Basically. But he's very good. I'll, I'll admit that. I really like the idea, though, maybe exploring the trade market. I look at the Cubs, perhaps, uh, you know, if they want to dangle you Darvish out there, just uh, I am, put me at the front of the line. Yeah, the, the, the problem, I mean, with free agency and signing players generally is it's, it's not like a store shelf. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can't look at Trevor Bauer and say, hey, do you have him in nice? <laughs> you, you don't have that option, unfortunately. Would you be upset if the Blue Jays Say they signed him to like 
eight years, 196 <laughs> million to pull a random number off out of out of my hat. I'm not wearing a hat, but uh, right. <laughs> how would you feel about that? Like in the end, do you feel just from a I know it's always hard to put a writer in a fan's shoes because it, once you go writer, it's hard to go back. But how, 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 how does that make you feel? Is the is the gain for you personally, just speaking for you personally, not all Jays fans, is the gain for you worth the downside? No, it's really not. Because I, I mean, I tend more to the fan side than the writer side, I think. And, I, you know, it, it, it certainly would be fodder for for stuff to write about, right? I mean, that, there would be no shortage of that. But I don't know. I, I, I think, like a lot of Jays fans, I would think of why the Blue Jays didn't want anything to do with Marcus Stroman and wonder why, you know, what the difference is that makes Bauer worth that and Stroman worth moving on. Because I really like Marcus Stroman and, and uh, think he could have, have, uh, have stuck around, even though that trade is looking real good for them at this point. Yeah, the, the trade does look great. And I, I have to admit, I was a little confused at the time what their overall plan was when they didn't you know aggressively try to keep stroman and then went after ryu because my my initial thought was you know why not both but my my sense there is that they they didn't want to make him their highest paid player and just sort of a focal point that way you know how that they kind of really wanted to move on i think but you know whatever the subtext of that is i'm not sure but yeah, they just, they, I, I think that, that it, the, some of the drama was too much. And that's what makes me, you know, that would make me question why they would invite Trevor Bauer into the organization with, you know, a, a penchant for drama himself. Uh, now that we're talking about Strowman, then I, I, I think about Aaron Sanchez. And uh, obviously that didn't go well for him uh, since leaving the Jays or really parts of the times with the Jays, with his injuries. What is he up to now? Do you have any idea? I, I know he wasn't, I don't believe he was signed last offseason. Yeah, I, I don't know how healthy he is at this point. It's it's a shame. I mean, he was a guy who, especially 2015, 2016, you know, he was, their, he was their best pitcher in 2016, basically. I think he was the AL's ERA leader. He, coming out of the bullpen in 2015, was uh, was outstanding. And it, it, it just, it sort of went very sideways on him. And uh, the unfortunate thing was how that all ended with the Blue Jays for me, I think, because uh, he he'd kind of... He'd been up and down and hurt and not and more hurt than than healthy. But uh, he had a couple of good starts and it started to look like, oh, you know, I think fans had always thought, oh, a couple it'll something will click and he'll turn the corner and, he, and he'll be the guy we thought he could be since, you know, 2010 when he was drafted. And then they immediately traded him and everybody just despised the fact that they did that. And then, of course, they turned out to be sadly very right because he just broke immediately with the Astros. Yeah, he he picked I think four starts for the Astros. He didn't even get into their postseason. It, he did he did pit, I believe there was a no hitter at some point in there, which didn't help the Jays fan reaction. <laughs> yeah, because for, for me he's kind of been in that Danny Salazar category. Like, where is he? Why hasn't someone mm. signed him yet? To you know, I mean Garrett Richards is injured every year, and he got a one year deal with a big option with the Padres. It it, it does worry me when I when I say where where'd the guy go? Haven't heard from him. He's not old. He's not even. I mean he's. 27 i think or 28 now there's a lot of time left to, to come back maybe he'll be a royal that seems like a royals thing does actually that makes a lot of sense just psychically you know yeah and of course it does make sense and maybe it's not a royals thing but <laughs> maybe i'm maybe i'm too mean but we'll save the royals bashing for when i have a royals guest <laughs> now we're talking about one of the team's strengths it's it's their young 
you know, their young lineup, the core of that lineup, that infield is, is solid from all over the field. I mean, you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He did not have his breakout, but he still contributed. He was only 21, you know, Bo Bichette, Kavon Biggio, and even, even Travis Shaw was okay-ish compared to where he was with the Brewers. Uh, now it does make me feel, I mean, you've seen Batman Returns, haven't you? I have. And isn't the Blue Jays and taking all the firstborn sons, isn't that kind of the Penguins' plan? That very well could be. I mean, not the killing part, but kind of using their genetics to to make like a super soldiers. That rings a bell. It's been a while since I've watched Batman Returns. But that does, there certainly seems like there's something going on with uh, with the Blue Jays there. Guriel, obviously, like his his father was a star in Cuba as well. Uh, they, uh, did they trade Griffin Conine, I believe? But he was another one, Jeff Conine's kid. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder how the players on the team that don't have dads in the majors, <laughs> how they feel. I mean, does uh, Randall Gritchick go in and say, you know, my dad was Bobby Gritch? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I can't put words in Randall Gritchick's mouth, frankly. But it is a, it's a really interesting infield that they've got. Not to talk about baseball, but... <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, this uh... is baseball adjacent. That's all I promise. <laughs> But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it go, uh, how things go with Guerrero. I mean, obviously, defensively, it was a step backwards. He had moved from, to first base. The whole of Canada was very excited earlier this month or, or in October when you know there's pictures coming out of him looking uh, quite a bit more svelte than uh, than we're used to, uh, which says too much about how his first couple of years in the big leagues have gone. That that's you know a story that anybody's paying attention to, but uh, but his conditioning has been a thing. The Jays have left the door sort of open for him to go back to third base, but also very clearly run prevention is like their biggest need. And so I don't think that that's the third baseman who is going to, to solve those issues for them. So it's going to be interesting. There's sort of a, a log jam over at first base at the moment, especially, you know, a couple of their outfielders probably would be better suited to DH. So it's something that's going to have to get sorted out, I think, over this winter. Yeah, I, I saw the pictures of, of Vladimir Guerrero uh, Jr., and he has lost a sizable mm. amount of weight. I was actually going to talk about that a little bit. He's gone from, you know, large adult son to regular adult son. <laughs> pretty much. He looked pretty svelte to, to me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, he's not, you know, Chris Sale thin or anyway. But, you know, as a fat dude, I'm like, you know, I'm appreciating that. It's like, yeah, you you done well. And, I mean, it, it's hard to do in an off season where everyone's inside. There's not much to do, but eat delicious things that are that come to the door. I know I'd have trouble losing 40 pounds at this point of the year, but he looked pretty good. And I actually thought when I saw it, like, hey, this might be more than a best shape of his life story. Yeah, no, I think I think there, there, there was, well, I was going to say there's only one way to go and that's up for him, but uh, no, it could have <laughs> continued to spiral in the wrong direction. But no, it's a, it's a positive sign. And I think it's something that the Jays have really are encouraged by because, you know, they're, they want him to embrace that and to, you know, to be as, as good as he can be and to have that sort of commitment to that. And I think uh, he sort of talked about it before and I, they were they were OK with how he came into spring training last year. And then it was the, the lockdown period where he kind of came back and they were like, oh, uh, <laughs> what have you been doing? You're playing first base, young man. Yeah. Has your training regimen been Horton's? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do like the idea of if he can to try to see him at third base, because my, my personal feeling is that the Blue Jays aren't so close to contention or so deep in contention, we'll say, that they shouldn't try to, you know, still aggressively look at some of these things. Do you think Travis Shaw will be non-tendered? I do. Yeah, uh, he was OK. He Like you say, he was better than he was in Milwaukee, but 
I don't know, just where the market is, I think that's probably five million or so dollars that they can they think they can spend better elsewhere. Do you think there are any other non-tender candidates with the Jays right now? That he would be the big one, I think, for me. Uh, I'm not a hundred hundred percent sure uh, who else. I guess Derek Fisher is another one. There's some uh, out of options guys who may not have a place, but the the main one I think would be would be Shaw. Uh, Chase Anderson had he stuck around, but he obviously is. Uh... I thought it would work out better than it did. I also thought Tanner Rourke would work out better than he did. That was a lot of home runs. <laughs> it was real ugly. Uh, you know, I think he's better than that. I hope there's other teams that think he's better than that. Uh, but I'm not sure. You know, obviously the nature of the, the season and the, all the extra arms in the bullpen didn't help. And he bristled about that a bit as well. You know, he called himself a diesel engine. He needs to need some innings to get warmed up. And then you kind of look at the numbers. You're like, that's not really <laughs> accurate. I'm sure that's how you feel. But everybody's entitled to a little bit of self-delusion. <laughs> it's true. But I mean, I, there, there are some guys who can push him out of the rotation fairly easily, I think. So they may try to to find a way to swap him if they're if they're taking on a big contract elsewhere. But he's also a guy I think they're probably happy to go into spring training with and then see what happens and let him get pushed out of the rotation if he does. Now, uh, back to the infield before we go. Touching on my favorite bounty hunter, uh, Boba Shett, Zips actually has, in future war projections for the rest of their career, has flipped Bichette and Vladito. It actually now has I mean, Bichette finishing with, with, with more career war than, than Vlad. How do you feel? Do you think Bichette has passed Vladimir, or do you think it's still too early to tell that? I think he's probably passed him. I think just because of, you know, the fact that he can play shortstop and, you know, may eventually move to second. But And he's just, he's looked so great. I, I, I know it's so early for Vlad still. And I think that, there, you know, there, there is more great to come from Vlad, obviously, but... Uh, I just think that maybe the defensive limitation is going to is going to push that in Bo's favor because Bo looks like he just keeps hitting. So uh, I'm happy to believe that that's real. <laughs> Still on the infield because that's my favorite topic with the Jays because it's a no fun doubt. infield. Do you think that the team would be willing to go after, say, Ha Sung Kim? Because he's played multiple positions. If they're non-tendering Shaw, Kim has would be an interesting addition to the team. I, I would love to see it, yeah. I, and obviously... You know, I know that they, they've made a, an effort, and a, we've heard this over the years. I think we heard in the Anthopolis era about making a bigger effort to to look overseas for players, but I think that we've really started to see the fruits of that. Uh, Ryu obviously was pitching in, in North America, but they went and got Shun Yamaguchi uh, from Japan last year, who really struggled with the with the different ball, I think, over here at first, and, and is you know not the ace that he was in Japan, but had a, a, was really useful for a, at least a few weeks in the bullpen last year. And was just a a flyer that they took on a guy over there that they you know they just trusted what their people were telling them, and I think that that's you know uh, a reason to be hopeful that a signing like him would be would be uh, in in their interest, and I you know I think that that's a, an exciting possibility for the Jays, and he definitely would could fit into that that infield, and it could be you know moving parts all the time rather than locking down you know an everyday third baseman, shortstop, second baseman. As we head out, uh, which we have to in a few minutes. If we're talking about the 2021 season, and naturally, since we haven't even had the offseason, I'm going to make you try to make a prediction, <laughs> not an exact win total, but on a scale from like zero to Dave Steeb, how do you feel right now about 2021? You don't have to, you don't have to make a win total, but just, you know, you're, you are trying to describe the 2021 season to someone 
who is going to travel to the future and see it, and you want to give them a preview of what's to happen. So how do you describe that season? <laughs> well, on the Dave Steve scale, I give it like an A.J. Burnett. You know, anything can happen. It, 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 could, it could work out real well. They could walk a ton of guys like they did last year. But yeah, I, I think it's like you're right that it really all depends on how the offseason plays out. And the Jays seem to be one of the teams that are, are, are more willing to be aggressive, which I think is really good. But then also leads to every agent in the world being like, oh, the Blue Jays are looking at our client. Uh, so it, that stuff can all be misleading, but I think that there's a real good chance that they come out of the offseason. And I think the expectation here uh, among fans especially is that, that they do come out of the offseason with a couple like really impactful pieces added, which could you know push them into the, into, you know, into the above 85 win kind of area, which I think is not unrealistic. So you know, I, I think it's going to be a fun season, and, and you never know when that Vladdy breakout hits, then you know, all bets are off too. So may you live in interesting times might not be a curse for the Blue Jays this offseason. Exactly right. Yeah, that, it's always good. You, it, it, it's more fun to have a you know a blessing than a curse. I mean, who wants to be cursed? But as I look at my clock, I fear we are out of time for this segment. You can currently find Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Stoughton. That's S T O E T E N. To check out all his upcoming work. And Andrew, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For Fangraphs, I'm Dan Zaborski. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program and would like to give back, consider a Fangraphs membership for yourself or a friend, or a donation at fangraphs.com donate. We hope your holiday is safe and relaxing. We appreciate you, and we'll talk to you next week.